So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I don't think my Prezi's coming up, but we'll see what we can do here. As I was saying at the start of the service, we're going to have to, uh, we'll take several weeks here to be working into chapter 11. We won't finish chapter 11 before uh, we take time there at Thanksgiving, and then um, we'll do an Advent series. And so uh, some of that, I, I definitely prayed and thought about just preaching straight through Corinthians through the Christmas season. I was willing to do that, but I uh, decided to take a little bit of a break, both to just honestly refresh my heart in a different genre, spend some time somewhere else um, in, in the text of Scripture and preach about Christmas and always love that, uh, but then also to buy me some more time for where we're going to be headed after Corinthians. Uh, and so you just pray for, for your leaders as we think through and plan through those things. But this morning, we're with Paul again, and he's in the thick of it. He's dealing with these false teachers, uh, lots of sarcasm. He calls them the super apostles. Uh, he, he, he's making fun of them when he says these kinds of things. Uh, and he is fighting literally for the souls, the minds uh, of these people that he loves so desperately. And you'll, you'll start to catch some of the hints of that. Uh, Paul is dropping some bombs here from chapter 11 into chapter 12 as he deals with these guys and has a lot to say about them uh, that would make anybody mad. But 2 Corinthians 11, let me read verses 1 down through verse 6, and then we'll, by God's grace, unpack that together this morning. Paul says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. And Paul's whole point here is that Christ is better. You know, when I was a little boy, we would go and visit my grandparents in Beckley, West Virginia. Um, It seemed like about every year or so we would go. And uh, whenever I went to my grandparents' house there, it was one of those old duplex styles, right? You hit the stairwell, you go up or down, upstairs. My grandfather would always be there in his chair, and it was this huge console TV. Some of you guys, you don't even know what I'm talking about. I mean, this is old school, the whole nine yards, everything built into it, record player on one side, speakers, it was, and, you know, then the TV in the middle. And the TV was always tuned to the PTL network, slowly, quiet, semi-quietly playing in the background. Uh, PTL stood for Praise the Lord. Uh, it was right outside of, based right outside of Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. And it was, it was its premier show was this show, it was only supposed to be about a two-hour show, but as a kid, it seemed like every time I walked by the TV, it was this one show that was on, and it was hosted by Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, um, a, a lady who never met makeup she didn't enjoy, um, and, and this smooth-talking snake oil salesman and named Jim Baker. And sitting on my grandparents' coffee table was like literally the world's largest family Bible you've ever seen in your life. I mean, you could have used this thing to pound fence posts into the ground. It was just huge, massive. I remember as a kid 
flipping through it, and, and you'd have, they had a whole thing on the American heritage, uh, so you'd have pictures of presidents and just images, and had a family tree in the opening. It was always set there, right there on, on the coffee table. I, I discovered my grandparents had given thousands to PTL to get this Bible, because it was actually signed uh, by Jim Baker. So I did a little bit of economic research. Uh, in today's monetary income, they gave somewhere between six and $7,000. Uh, to this organization. Now, uh, for many of you, uh, certainly if, if, if you're my age or above, you know the, the sordid tale and ultimately how Jim and Tammy Faye were just stealing money from people. Uh, you could get a lifelong membership to Heritage USA, this massive Christian amusement park at a big water park, big hotel. It was actually right up near Fort Mill, South Carolina. The whole thing came crashing down. It was revealed uh, Jim Baker's numerous affairs and just how corrupt this organization was, tax evasion, and they just were fleecing people all the time. My, parent, my grandparents gave these people thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. My grandparents weren't wealthy. My grandfather had spent his whole life working as a coal mining foreman in Beckley, West Virginia. Um, so these were not wealthy people. They were giving everything they had to these folks. And you might begin wondering, what, how do you get duped by people like this, right? Shai Lin, um, he's, he's a Christian rap artist. He did a song a number of years ago. He took a lot of heat for it. And the title of the song was called False Teachers. And the S's look like dollar signs. And he like named some people. Like this dude just calls people out. Let me just read to you some of the lyrics from it. Because it's, uh, it, it, obviously, because it's in the rap genre, it's, it's lyrical, it's, it's rhyming. He says it this way. He dedicated it to the Christians in Africa because he saw the export of a lot of this prosperity gospel to Africa. He was concerned about it. Some of the best lines flow this way. He says, turn off TBN. That channel is overrated. The pastors speak bogus statements, financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people. Ungodly and wicked. Ask yourself, how can they not be convicted? Treating Jesus like a lottery ticket. And you're thinking they're not the dangerous type because some of their statements are right. That only proves that Satan comes as an angel of light. This teaching can't be believed without a cost. The lie is you can achieve a crown without a cross. He actually finished his song by naming people, Paula White, Eddie Long, Creflo Dollar. I mean, he just, and he took so much heat and criticism for this. And you may be wondering, how do people actually buy into the nonsense of the prosperity gospel at all? <clears throat> Health and wealth. The idea that while the American dream and the freedom is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Jesus just makes that better because Jesus wants you healthier, richer, wiser, stronger, more prosperous. The idea that you can give seed offerings, put a little bit in and get a lot back. Funny how it's always give them some. God blesses them and their promise that God will give to you. I remember Robert Tilton years ago used to do hankies that he anointed with oil that he manufactured based on the Old Testament recipe. It's interesting, he always put that verse up there, but these verses end with, and if anyone makes this for something other than the temple, let there be a curse on them and God will kill them. Well, he would anoint these, pray over them, send them to you. You're supposed to put that on you and you could get healed for a low, low price of $99. How do people get duped by false teachers? Is it just because my grandparents didn't have much past a high school education? Is it because they were country bumpkins living in West Virginia and they're not as smart as you? Is it because they didn't love Jesus? 
and they weren't good enough students of the word. Is that why? Is that how they were deceived? Products of a subpar educational system and bad theology? What if, what if it's actually much scarier than that? What if it's things that are not so far removed from us? And what if you and I are just as susceptible? You see, my grandfather, by the time I knew him, his body was racked with Parkinson's and this six, over six foot tall monster of a man with hands like bricks had been reduced to this shaking, hunched over man who couldn't walk on his own and couldn't even drink his own coffee because he would shake so bad it would spill and burn him. That's the grandfather I knew. I never knew the man who pushed a car up the hill with his family in it because the battery had died. I never knew the man who had raised nine children in strength and vitality. I never knew the man that sometimes he was a a Sunday school superintendent for years, sometimes would even fill in and do devotionals. I never knew the man that would lead the family in worship. I never knew the man that was noted for his strength and his power. I never knew the man that neighbors would call. The man I knew was scary to me and hunched over and could barely speak and had wispy white hair and was frail And I had to be careful when I hugged him because they said I could hurt him, but he didn't know the own strength in his hands. And when he would grab my arm, he'd leave bruises because the Parkinson's and black lung had debilitated his neuropathways so much he could not control his own strength. That's the man I knew. He wasn't taken in by false teachers because he only had high school education. He was taken in by the promise that Jesus could fix you. That's how he was duped. See, my grandfather wanted to be whole and to well to be well he wanted the restoration of his quick wit and his humor he was noted for how funny he could be and some guy an evangelist with a smooth tongue and a deceptive message tells him that jesus agrees with him jesus agrees that he should be stronger and healthier jesus agrees that that he should have resources to be able to bless his nine kids and his innumerable frankly grandkids and great-grandkids And that Jesus, if you would just pray hard enough, and if you would have enough faith to believe, and if you'd send them money, these guys would pray for you as well, then you could be fixed. And so with money mailed in, he's guaranteed of prayer. Mingled with enough faith, he'd be guaranteed of healing. Be careful how quick you judge people who are deceived by false teachers. Understand first where your own faith could be warped and twisted, and then you will deal sympathetically with those that have been duped, and you'll deal fiercely with the wolves. I hate false teachers. I say that with no reservation and no hesitation. I have a deep inward despise for the prosperity gospel and for the fakeness. I'm not amused by them. I'm angered by them. I've seen and experienced the devastation of my own family. I've had enough conversations over the years and the last 20 years in pastoral ministry with people saying, hey, I heard this, what do you think about that? And it's the most outlandish false theology you could imagine. I've watched relatively impoverished people give money and think it's a seed offering that somehow God is going to bless them because of some dude they saw on TBM. And so the big takeaway this morning is this, learn to pump your stomach of the poison of a false gospel and you pump it with the sweetness of Jesus. You know what stomach pumping is, right? Somebody ODs. They take too much of a medication. They go in and and they dump stuff into your stomach, usually charcoal or something like this, and it pumps your stomach, causes a fierce reaction, neutralizes the medicine, makes you throw everything up. It's not a pleasant thing to watch. Trust me. I've been in a couple of emergency room situations. I was in one situation where somebody was trying to take their own life and they'd OD'd on a bunch of pills. 
And this is not a pleasant moment. And the reality is we ingest poison sometimes and, and poison of false teaching. And it, it affects us. And so what do we need? We don't need charcoal. We need Jesus. And so this morning we want to journey with Paul and understand in this text how he's, how he's dealing with these Corinthians, these otherwise uh, saints that he loves deeply, and yet they're at great risk from false teachers. And so we want to understand, first of all, how is it that deception really works? The first thing Paul does, and, and what he's about to do is, in verse 1, let me just lay out the text. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness do bear with me. He now has a little bit of a parenthetical, and it's a pause. He's not going to come back to that again till about verse 16. So just so you can see it in your text, you understand what I'm talking about. It's not just based on what I say. You can see it in the Word. Verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What he's going to start doing in verse 16 is he's actually going to start comparing himself to the false apostles or false teachers, the super apostles. That's what he's prepping them for in verse 1. Now, the way they compared themselves was they compared themselves among themselves in their strengths, their abilities. Look how good I argue. Look at the fruit of my ministry. Look at these things that I've accomplished. Look at God's favor on my, on my head. Look at God's favor on my life. And Paul actually, and it's going to look crazy, and he's, he's again using sarcasm. He says, bear with my foolishness of comparison. But they're all going to compare strengths. What Paul's going to do from verse 16 on is compare all his weaknesses. Well, we have to spend enough time in Corinthians. We know what he means by that. Let them argue about how strong they are. Let me tell you how weak I am so that you can see Jesus' strength. And so that's what he's doing here in verse 1, where, he, where he's starting to, to prep them for that. Uh, that's going to begin in earnest in verse 16, so it'll be a few weeks before we get there. He's going to start dropping bombs, as I said, on these false teachers. He will call them, in the, in the process, he will call them agents of Satan, he would say they're masquerading as angels of light. He'll call them fools and he'll call them false apostles. Now Paul knows something that every pastor knows, every parent knows, every discipler knows, every counselor knows. It's this, we can't stop you from hearing false teaching. It's absolutely impossible. It's not like we, somebody, it's not like go to your home change your TV station. It's not like I can get in your car and change your radio station. It's not like I can invade your internet browser, right? You know, I can't, I can't hook up with, with uh, Facebook or whatever it's called now and change the ads you see. We can't stop you from hearing false teaching. We can't do it in our day. Paul certainly couldn't do it in his day. We can't prevent the influx of bad information people were exposed to. Uh, if you just think of it in time, at most, at most, your elders, your elders have, have at most an hour or two a week to feed you truth. Now this is in a world and in a culture that, that the average family watches four hours of TV a day, over two hours individually spent on social media is an average, and another average of an hour and a half of radio each day. On top of that dynamic, Paul knows exactly what parents know, what disciples know, what counselors know. That the hour or two we have is telling you things you actually don't want to hear. Compared to the hours upon hours upon hours of things false teachers will say, which is everything you want to hear. 
And so it's a little bit like this. If you think time is money, and we were to break those kind of time things down into money with the average income rate here in Irmo, it's a little bit like this. Average income rate in, in Irmo right now is about $15.5 an hour. So in other words, would you rather spend $30 to get your toes stepped on or get paid $800 to listening to a bubbling spring brook in the wilderness? <laughs> That's easy, right? $30 to get kicked around? Or are you going to pay me $800 to sit by a mountain spring? That's the contrast between truth speech and false teaching. And so you can't silence the false teachers for someone else. The reality is every individual must be trained and must learn to see false teaching for what it is. They must be trained to hate it. They must be trained to despise it, to turn from it. And to do that, every person in this room must come to the point, that includes this preacher, this pastor, this shepherd up here, every person in this room must come to the point that they admit that our own hearts can swallow the poison of false teaching. We are at risk, every one of us, but how? Now, I'm going to pause here in this moment, because even as I was studying working through this, it just was reminding me, as Paul is saying this, one of their accusations is Paul is just in it for him. And so when I say things like this, I know that there's the immediate temptation for some of you, Steve and or Darren, are just jealous of other really good preachers. Let me tell you something. Go listen to great preaching. I do every week. Go read great books, but learn what to eat and what not to eat. Learn what to drink and what not to drink. That's the issue. And so Paul knows time-wise, Paul knows discernment-wise, Paul knows how the false teachers are working, and so he wants to help them. And so what we have to do is humbly come to the reality that every one of us is susceptible. First of all, we see deception in the face of dedication. Paul goes forward, he says it this way, do bear with me, verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you. In other words, he's saying, "I, I think God has given me a love for you, like it's the kind of love he has for you. I feel a divine jealousy for you, and now he puts himself in the position like he is a, uh, a matchmaker. He says, I feel divine jealousy since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And you can tell what he's thinking when he goes to the next verse. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's going all the way back, and he's thinking about that moment in the garden where God makes Eve, and he brought Eve to Adam. And Paul's thinking, when I go and I preach the gospel to you, and God saved you, and, and now I'm preaching to you for another year and a half to help disciple you, and I'm writing letters to you, and I'm trying to help you, it's like I'm bringing you to Christ. And we know that this is one of the illustrations Paul thought of elsewhere, because in Ephesians, he talks about us being the bride and Christ the husbandman. This is a play off the Old Testament covenant language God used, where he says, like, Israel is my bride. That's why when Israel went into idolatry, he said, I divorce you because you're adulterers. Uh, He's going to create a new bride that's redeemed people. And so this is Paul's mindset. Paul is saying, I love you deeply. I've invested in you. You know me. You've seen this. Seen me and seen how I operate. Now, this is not the only time that Paul talks about people being duped. In Romans, he talks about the naive being led astray by divisive people. In Galatians, his language is even stronger. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Literally, that means, who has put you under their spell? 
right? There's a, there's a famous love song, I put a spell on you. They're just enraptured by it. They're googly-eyed for false teachers. It's like they can't get away from it. It's a drug they can't quit taking. And here he is saying that they are being duped. So it goes back to this Garden of Eden moment, and he likens them to Eve who is deceived. God has made her. He has fashioned her from Adam's rib. She is the perfect one for Adam. And he brings her to Adam. And Adam says, hubba hubba, um, whoa, man, woman, right? Bad joke. You'll get it later. It's okay. Maybe so bad it's not even worth a chuckle. That's all right. Don't feel bad for me. I'm insecure. So, <laughs> so here we got man, we got woman. There's dedication here. Adam loves her. God loves her. There's oneness. There's no sin. There's not that conflict that we all fight through in relationships and deal with in marital relationships. It's just perfect. And then here comes Satan to lie to her and to deceive her. And so deception drives this wedge in their relationship. And so what Paul is asking us to do is to consider, think about it this way, how do false teachers drive a wedge in our relationship with the people God has put into our lives who love us with truth? How does that happen? How do we end up not trusting? How do we end up not believing? You know, it's amazing. There's so much we've learned on this cancer journey. And one of the things that always happens, and anybody that's had a serious medical condition, you know this is the truth, um, you always have helpful people who give you medical advice. Some of that is really helpful. Some of it is crazy town. Some of it's actually really bad. They're all well-intentioned. How do they get you to not believe the people who really are trying to care for you? How does that happen spiritually? I, I think the fact of the matter is this is so pertinent for our day because culturally, culturally, if you look at the history of the United States, coming up until about the mid-60s, there was large trust of authority. Governmental authority, uh, church authority, parental authority, and hitting about the mid-60s, all that began to fall apart. Not in part because of the papers that come out that reveal that the government lied to everybody about Vietnam. They knew it was a losing war. It was used to perpetuate political gains. It just was. So it's like, if you can't trust them, what do we do? That trust has never been regained. And that trust eroded everything. We don't trust medical authority. We don't trust church authority. We don't trust educational authority. We don't trust parental authority. We don't trust. There's a, how does it happen? How is it that our hearts can be so easily deceived from people that otherwise previously we trusted? Well, this is how it works. Deception plays on our desires. It goes after what we want. Now, when I talk about desires, they're not all necessarily wrong. The things that Eve wanted were not all bad. You see, you can have a good desire, and you think James 4, uh, from whence come wars and fighties among you, come they not hence from your desires. The, the desire itself may not always be bad. We can have wrong desires. We get that. But the desire itself may not be wrong. It's hedonistic. It's hedonistic is the term that's used there. It's when the desire rules you. So is it wrong to desire safety? I don't think so. Is it wrong to desire a degree of independence? 
Absolutely not. Galatians 6, it's designed so every man should carry his own burden. There should be rightness and independence and maturity. Is it wrong to desire maturity or knowledge or security? Is it wrong to even desire a degree of power in order to accomplish things? Not necessarily. The desire itself may not always be bad. An identity of our own, to have respect, to even be successful. The problem is how these desires begin to rule us in what we think the answer is. And James actually tells it to us this way, each man is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So what Satan does is he sees we have this desire, he dangles temptation in front of us. Listen, listen now, like we're believers. Satan is, you know, and thank goodness I've never heard any of you say this, right? The devil didn't make you do it. He ain't climb all up inside you. There's no demon in you making you do things. He can't compel your actions. But, but he has studied humanity for thousands of years. And look, if you and I can figure out what are some things we desire, right? It's not rocket science. It's not. You ever met a lady who didn't desire to be attractive? You ever met a man who didn't desire to be respected? You ever meet a young couple, otherwise healthy, who didn't desire children? You ever met a single person going through their 20s that on some level didn't desire companionship? Like, so Satan's been studying desires a long time. And so what he wants is us to be ruled by those desires, so he dangles temptation. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And the language is used just like fishing. Just throw out the bait. Then desire when it's conceived. And so suddenly we're like, now this desire, and he wants to tempt us in a way for an unrighteous fulfillment of it. I'm going to go after it. And I'm going to sin. That's the action now. Starts with desire, goes to action. And then there's consequence that comes later. When it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is like one of those moments that the English language and the translators really try to clean it up. Because it's so graphic that it's pretty disgusting. Because the language here would be of an intimate nature. The language is prone to a couple... uh, in a sinfully illicit, immoral way, and what is conceived is a deformed entity that's born dead. And it's like a corpse in you that comes out of you. And that's the language. It's pretty striking what he's going after. That's how ugly sin is. That's how disgusting this is. And, but how it works is going after desires. When Eve is lured by Satan, she looks at the fruit, she sees that it's beautiful, desire. She sees it will taste good, desire. And she wants ultimately what Satan promises it will bring. Knowledge, autonomy, power, freedom. All these things. These are her desires that she wants. You and I will only fall prey to deception when it plays off what we really really want you want to know where you're most susceptible to be deceived by false teachers ask yourself what you want the most that's where you'll find it and so deception though isn't enough though to play off our desires and the reason is because we all know what it's like to say no to desire in fact it's the premier thing that old men are to teach young men it's really the essence of it is how do you say no and we all know what it's like to say no now most of us don't say no enough right we all know what it's like to say no. You know, we don't eat the whole dozen of Krispy Kreme donuts. And if you're like, yes, I do, then let's just expand it. You only eat three dozen, right? 
You don't eat everything. You don't, you don't yell when you know, somebody does something wrong to you. You're not always screaming. You desire to, to put them on blast, and you don't do it. You're, you're at Walmart, and somebody goes and t- takes 20 items. I don't think Walmart has these anymore. So food line, you go to food line, 10 items or fewer, and you've got this genius who can't count to 10. They take 30 items. You can't tell what irritates me. And so your desire is to let that guy know, apparently, you, I'm no math elite but you got 30. It's 10, right? You don't always give in to those desires. That guy drives by you, cuts you off on the road. He gives a little sign language. He thinks you're deaf. You want to give a little sign language back. You don't give in to the desire because you remember you put a fish on the back of your car and you're afraid, right? We all know what it's like to say no to desires. And so when we're talking about a desire that wants to be inflamed and be idolatrous, deception is only going to work by breaking down the walls that are keeping us from saying yes to that desire. So deception can't just, it, it's going to play on my desire, but it's got to help me find a way to say yes to it. It's got to find a way to help me to give into it. And this happens in your mind. This is the way he puts it, verse 3. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so he does it in the mind. Let me ask you this. What do you think the way is to help somebody break down the barriers? I'm going to give multiple choice tests for you. Predictions. What do you think the best method is to break down barriers? And here's why I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with whatever Satan's method is. Because that's what he's spent thousands of years doing. That's what false teachers are doing. Number one, is this the best way? Careful argumentation to refute what they've been told. In other words... The way somebody could dupe you, a false teacher could dupe you, is by you leaving here and them through logic and reason proving to you what your shepherds have said to you is wrong. Is that how children are duped? They go to school or they're out playing in the neighborhood, they're hanging out with friends, parents have said X. Do their friends, is the best way to get them to break down their barriers to do what they know they shouldn't do is the best method through logic and reason. That's one item. One option, uh, option B. Present both sides equally and give them a choice. In other words, come across and say, I'm not trying, necessarily trying to convince you to my side. I just want to present to you the opposite and let you choose. They don't even want to let you choose. I want to let you choose. I bet nobody ever told you this. Nobody ever shared this with you. Is that the best way to break down barriers? Uh, option C, undermine their confidence in the one telling their behavior is wrong. Doubt over debate. In other words, go to some good old-fashioned mudslinging. Let me just start <laughs> nailing whoever it is that's told you this thing. Is that how we work it? Or uh, 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 to mix all the numbers and letters, option four. Yeah, right. Letter D. Letter D, affirm their desires are right. You know what? You should follow your own heart. You should do what's going to make you happy. Life is too short to be miserable. Which one would you go for? Now, in, in many ways, just to be honest with you, you know, and I, think, I know some of you want enough to know you want option E, all the above. I know you. Now you're wired. Some of you are struggling because you don't like to get things wrong. And yes, at points, it's all of these, but this is the one he goes after. Attack the person, not the argument. My wife's cancer journey, she's handled this much better than I have. Somebody (coughs) recommended a course of treatment for her. I will not tell you what it is. 
their argument was, uh, the pharmaceutical company and your medical doctor are only in this for the money. And so there's this, what would otherwise be a free resource to everyone is proven to heal your cancer. You should do this. So the good husband that I am, I look into it. I'm like, all right, let me look into it. And what's interesting to me is the almost the sum total of the argument was appeal to the desire, be cancer-free, be healthy and whole, and attack pharmaceutical company, doctors, whatever. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying all these people are pure, but the attack was they're just in it for the money. They want you on chemo. They want you on radiation because they make big bucks. They make thousands upon thousands of dollars. This would otherwise be free. So I'm like, well, I wonder what this alternative treatment would cost. Crunch the numbers. Shocking. Shocking. They would love to offer it for free. They would love to do that. However, your insurance company is in cahoots with the pharmaceutical company and the doctors, so they can't actually give it to you for free. And guess what it would cost? Thousands upon thousands of dollars. I'm like, I literally wanted to email them and be like, do you think people are born stupid? Like your argument is they want your money, but your solution is to take lots of my money? But all they need people to do is to strongly desire to be healthy and to stop trusting anyone else. That should be a dead giveaway to you of the hallmark of the way false teachers work. They don't primarily go after logic and reason. You know why? Because while there may be grains of truth in what they say, there's enough error that when you open the Bible, you can show they're wrong. They can't primarily just try to make it about freedom of choice because they need you to follow them. What they do is they attack those whom God has put into your life to lovingly give you truth. And so all of a sudden, Satan starts asking, well, did God really say that? Did he really want that? You know what? God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because then he knows you'll be like him. In other words, you know what he's saying to Eve? Eve, you're smart and you're powerful and you are wise and God and Adam are scared of you. And you can't trust them. They're in it to lord it over you and to be powerful over you. You know what? You can't trust Paul. Paul's in it for the money. Paul's in it for power. Paul's in it for control. Paul's in it for him. They couldn't argue truth because they didn't have truth. They had to go to some old-fashioned mudslinging and just nail him. Look at Paul. He's weak. And he's powerless. He's ineffective and he's poor. You want to follow somebody like that? Deception works. Because it plays on our desires and because it breaks down barriers. And the way it breaks down barriers is by attacking those who have been dedicated to our cause. And I just want you to remind you, teachers, pastors, parents, they, they know and love Jesus to the extent to which they're giving you the truth of the word. It's not about whether or not it makes you feel good. They need to be on mission to help you be like Jesus. 
And the last time I checked, every time somebody's helping me to be like Jesus, it didn't feel too great. Scalpel cuts were never pleasant. But I got some cancer in me, and it's called my flesh. And I need some help by the power of the Spirit and God's Word through others to help do that surgical work to deliver me. We must learn to pump our stomachs of the poison of a false gospel with the sweetness of the true Jesus. Now, Paul goes on, though, and it's interesting. Let me show you the link here. In verse 1 of 11, he said, I wish you would bear with me. Do bear with me. And so he's playing this. He knows that they don't like listening to him. He knows they're annoyed by him. They're irritated by him. But look what he says that they will do. If some, verse 4, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so they tolerate all the wrong people in their lives. A good indication of deception is who it is and what it is we want to listen to and who it is we want to be around. Are you drawn to truth? Or are you drawn to people who are just like you and who agree with you? Are you drawn to people who affirm your desires? Or are you drawn to people who push you to be like Jesus? Are you willing to believe that people who challenge you and they step on your toes and they confront you, well, they must not really care about me. They're just in it for them. There's no indication that Eve sought out any more information from God. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is we know God walked with them. Uh, really, the pre-incarnate Christ would come every evening. We know that because after they sin, they know he's coming. They know he's going to come. It's not like Eve even hit pause button and was like, hmm, you're making some good points, serpent. But I know I'll talk to God in a couple hours. Let me just get some more information from him then. And let me get some help. There wasn't a willingness on her part to do that. She so easily believed the lies he was telling her about God himself. God who had made her, God who fed her, God who cared for her, God who loved her. I mean, let's just be honest. God, God is perfect parent. But when the strings of her desires were plucked, that's the tune she danced to. That's what she wanted. And Paul says, this is how you are operating Corinthians. There's every indication that the Corinthians are avoiding listening to Paul. It's fascinating. You might remember way back from 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with them, and they send him something like 10 questions. And if I remember correctly, it was like the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. He doesn't even answer any of their questions. And now why, why does he do that? Because the first several chapters, Paul saying, this is what we really need to be talking about. Now I'll get to your questions. Because they didn't want Paul's input on the most important things. They isolated from Paul anywhere he might challenge their thinking. You know what most of us do? We face a decision. We already know what we want. We don't go looking for counsel about whether we should or shouldn't. We go looking for affirmation for what our desires actually are. And we get mad at people if they tell us no. We get irritated if they say, I'm not sure that's wise. We get upset if they say, well, let's open the Bible and think through that. Because we really just want people to encourage us to do what we want to do, and we tend to isolate from people who speak God's truth to us in loving ways. It shouldn't shock us because Proverbs 18.1 tells us this is the way we operate. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. 
And so Paul knows that they're pulling back from him. Paul knows that they don't want to bear with him, they don't want to listen to him, but they want to put up with all these false teachers. And so let's look at the content of their deception. He says it's a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. What does he mean by those things? So when he says, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, what was the different Jesus that the false teachers, the super apostles, were telling the Corinthians about? Well, every indicator is this. They wanted to put the sole focus of Jesus' talk on his power and his glory. And they didn't want to spend any time talking about crucifixion and suffering. They wanted to talk about power, not weakness. Glory, not slavery. Strength and honor, not despise and rejection. We can see that in a number of ways. If you look back in chapter 10, verse 12, Paul begins to hint at this. He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another, compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. These guys compared and commended strengths. Look at our gifting. Look at our power. Look at our ministry. Look at, look at our strength. Look at our success. Look at our financial success. Look at all the good things about us. And so when they would talk about Jesus, that's the only things they wanted to talk about with Jesus. You get another hint of it in verse 6, where Paul owns his own weakness in arguing. Here in 11.6, he says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, the word there is rhetoric. It's an argumentation that he's talking about. Paul's saying, I'm not actually good at arguing. I know I'm not. He owns it. The super apostles were really good at arguing and debating. So do you think they spent much time talking about Jesus being silent as a sheep before his shearers? Do you think they spent much time talking about Jesus that when Pilate's asking him, just prove who you are, and Jesus is relatively quiet? Do you think they're talking about the part where Jesus is hanging on a cross and people are mocking him, and if you're the Son of God, climb down off the cross, and Jesus is silent? Do you think that's the Jesus they talked about? Do you think they talked about the Jesus who allowed himself to be arrested? Or do you think their their only conversation is Jesus with a threefold whip clearing out the temple? You get another sign of it when he classifies his own leadership. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so Paul emphasizes his weaknesses so they can see God's true strength. Paul talks about the kind of Jesus who lays down his life for others. Paul talks about the kind of Jesus who is crucified for them. Paul talks about the kind of Jesus who's meek and who's gentle. They talk about the other Jesus. Which Jesus do you want? You want quiet Jesus? Letting himself be arrested? Is that the Jesus you want? Or do you you want Jesus who's going to come pulling a sword out of his mouth and laying waste to his enemies? You want Jesus gentle and meek? Letting himself be beaten and stripped? You want the Jesus who's suffering? Who's mocked and taunted? Or do you want Jesus in white horse on white horse return in power? How about the powerful Jesus who one day will break open the graves and prove all his enemies wrong? You see, the truth is you and I already feel weak and nameless and powerless and afflicted. We already feel sick and insecure. What we want is the kind of leader who stands up to the bullies, who stands up for himself and stands up for us. 
Our desire is to rule and to reign. So that's what we want to hear about. We want to hear more about our rights and our strength and our power. So we want to hear more about that kind of Jesus, not the one who says, submit and obey and take up your cross. The only Jesus that the false teachers talk about doesn't match at all what they see in Paul. Before his salvation, Paul led a whole group that was capturing people and martyring them. Before his salvation, Paul was noted for his teaching and his power and his authority. Before his salvation, Paul was respected and feared. After his salvation, he doesn't argue too well. He's impoverished. He's getting beaten up, run out of cities. He cries a lot when they say mean things to him. It's not just a different Jesus. It's a different spirit. He says if someone gives you a different spirit or leads you to a different spirit, as I just noted, Paul said he was seeking to be meek and gentle. These guys are aggressive and physical. Paul was weepy and sorrowing. These guys are commanding and arguing. They know, false teachers know, that none of us likes to get smacked around. They know that we want our rights. We want them right now. They know that our desires for respect and deference, it's hard to win respect while you're crying from wounds that you've received. Paul tells them to think the best about each other. Paul tells them to care for each other. Paul tells them to reign in their liberties. Paul says, be willing to give up your rights for the cause of the kingdom and loving others. Paul tells them to serve each other, to give to each other. These false teachers, though, play on their desires, the desire to think that we we have what we have because we work harder than other people. We have what we have because we're smarter than other people. We have what we have because God is happier with me, and that's why he's pouring out his blessing on me, and he must not be happy with these poor people over here. The desire is ultimately this, to believe that God needs us. And really, God wants us, and frankly, if we're honest, God's pretty blessed to have me on his team. Because that makes us feel good. All of this ultimately resulted in a different gospel. He says a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Paul doesn't explicitly tell us what the different gospel is. In Galatians, he does. In Galatians, it was like you need Jesus, but then you need to do all your good works of following the law to be sanctified. He's not as explicit here about what the different gospel is, but I I don't think it's actually too difficult to figure out. You see, ultimately the gospel is either all of Jesus and none of us, or it's a false gospel. I'm going to say that again. Either the gospel is all of Jesus and none of us, or it's a false gospel. It's not Jesus plus you. As Jonathan Edwards put it, the only thing you bring to your salvation is a lost and unrepentant heart. And then God rescues you. You and I are sinners. We are wretches in desperate need of salvation. We are wicked and we are condemned. We are warped in our desires. We are warped in our thinking. And the good news of the gospel is God loves us anyway. And God will utterly transform us and make us his own. The false teachers ultimately want to present a gospel. It's like Jesus was on mission to make smart people smarter, pretty people prettier, and gifted people more effective. And we just need to work out our part in order to be saved. At the core, that is the false gospel. God on mission to make more of you. The true gospel is God on mission for his glory. The true gospel is God on mission for his own glory by making dead people live, undeserving people accepted, lost people saved, and he makes orphans into sons and daughters. You know what their real desire was? Their real desire was to be somebody. 
And suddenly, suddenly, I'm like, whoa, I can hate PTL and TBN, but guess what I desire? To be somebody. And so suddenly my heart is just as susceptible. And all I need is somebody that comes along and in my foolishness and sinfulness, listen to their whispering, here's how you can be somebody. And so the fact is, we are a new day, but I think the same deceptions are there. I don't think my grandpa that his desire for strength and wholeness was wrong. I really don't. I don't think your desire for acceptance or value is wrong. I don't think your desire to be safe is wrong. I don't think my desire ultimately even for success is wrong. I'm convinced, though, that those desires are the open door for deception. And into that door come lies. Lies that say that there can be a crown without a cross. Lies that say that there's a promised land without a wilderness. Lies that say that you can have Jesus and the things of this world. Lies that say that Jesus is not enough. And in that moment, we drink the poison of this world. Lies that ultimately say our true value is visible. And it's not. Are we really all that different from the Corinthians who are afraid of their weaknesses? Are we really all that different from the Corinthians who despised where they're broken? Are we all that different from the Corinthians where we are so ashamed of our inabilities that we mask them? That we are so ashamed of our sin struggles that we don't confess them? That we are so ashamed of what we can't do that all we ever want to talk about is the things we do do? Are we really so far from Eve who began to believe that God is keeping some good from her? What we really need is a true Jesus, a true spirit, and a true gospel. <laughs> Paul finishes with an amazing statement here. He gets down to the end of this. He says, verse 5, Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we've made this plain to you in all things. He says, really, put it in our language, I, I really don't argue too good. Like, I don't, I don't do a good job in the debate. These guys are much better debaters than I am. But don't you dare question what I know. Now, we then have to ask, well, what is it that you know? And the word he's using here is gnosko. It's that experiential knowledge. It means don't you dare question how much Jesus Paul knows because he's walked with him. Now, here's, the, here's how this works. The false teachers and the lies that we want to believe is that I will feel more secure, I'll feel more safe, I, I will feel smarter, I'll, I'll be more attractive to others, I'll be more accepted by others, I will be free, I feel a sense of freedom. And this touches every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room. Because it doesn't matter if you go to school every day and you're worried about what other people think of you. And so you want 
what other successful people have. You want their looks, their athletic ability, you want their power, their strength, you want their acceptance, or whether you're a mom and you want people to value the way you parent and be amazed by the, the good wife you are, whether you're a husband and you want the respect of others in your workplace or in the community, whether, whether you're a grandparent and you want everybody to treasure you, it's, you have this desire, this, this heart that says, I want and I want and I want and I want. And I want you to know these desires are not necessarily sinful. What's critical for you to know, though, is every one of those desires reveals an area you are weak. You want because you don't have. And into that moment, the false teachers say, you can have more of you, and Jesus is actually on mission to make more of you. And then you have Paul over here who says, I don't argue too good, and I know I'm not the best preacher, and I know I'm poor, and I know that I'm bruised, and I know that I'm broken. I'm a broken vessel. I'm really not worth a lot. I, I, I should be on the trash heap. And everybody's like, I don't know if I want to be that. And when Paul says, don't question my knowledge, here it is, listen to me now, because Paul knows weakness and brokenness takes you deeper and wider with Jesus. And a quest for more of you doesn't. And so the question is, what do you actually want? More of you or more of him? And all through Corinthians, that's the argument Paul's been making, that Jesus is better. And so let me show it to you in two other texts text Darren just read. Paul puts it this way, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. It's gnosko him. But listen to how he wants to know him. The power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Job puts it this way at the end. The righteous man goes through suffering. His heart is exposed. His own false theology is revealed. His own temptations. He gets to the end of Job. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Listen to me now. Quit buying into the lie of the false teachers that you need to be stronger. You need to be more powerful. You need to be accepted. You need to be successful. And buy into the truth of the gospel. God finds you in your weakness. He finds you in your brokenness. And he's not on mission to heal up all the cracks that we see. He's on mission to heal your soul so that he can shine out of you. Who do you want to know? More of him or more of you? In every heart in this room, mine may be top of the list. Once the lie that says, I can have it both. The truth is, every new trial, every revealed brokenness, every exposed weakness, every divine suffering is to take you and me wider and deeper into the experiential knowledge of of Jesus. What do you find there? What is this Gnosko knowledge that Paul found there? And I'm going to tell you what you find. You find there the power and the glory and the majesty and the love and the generosity and the acceptance and the wholeness and the healing that is found in Jesus. I don't have to duct tape my cracks and fissures and my brokennesses and my weaknesses. I don't have to be on mission to be viewed as successful or to be treasured or to be found to be strong or smart. 
because he found me. And he took me with all that mess, not so he could fix all that mess, but so that he could show his glory out of my mess. I didn't need, listen to me now, because I say this as one whom God has gloriously healed his wife. I didn't need a towering six-foot-tall grandpa renewed with strength and vigor. It's not what that little boy needed. I didn't need a grandpa who didn't need me to help him feed him his cereal because he shook so bad he couldn't get the spoon to his mouth. That's not the grandpa I needed. It makes me even angrier at the false teachers who duped him with the lie that that's what his family would need. I needed a grandpa broken. I needed a grandpa shaking. I needed a grandpa silenced by disease on his sick bed, calling his sons close to him so he could whisper in their ear. And what did he ask for? He asked that hymns would be sung to him. He asked that psalms would be read to him. He asked that they would tell him about heaven because he knew he would be there soon. My grandpa was bound in a wheelchair and never taught me how to catch one fish, hammer one nail, never told me a joke. But you know what he taught me? As his body wasted away, he taught me this. Jesus was better. And it was out of his weakness and his brokenness that I saw this. Though God never healed him, he could only but wait to see his Savior face to face. He taught me that though God, God had never failed him, Jesus had not. And Jesus was good enough to give him strength. Guess what? Jesus was good enough when he was weak. Can I just tell you, learn to pump your stomach of the poison of the false gospel of this world with the sweetness of the true Jesus.